Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to Piers Torday. Uh, mostly a children's author. We talk about how writing for kids is, is different and sometimes trickier than writing for adults. Also, all about his new book, The Wild Before, and what it's like writing a preview. And uh, this week, it's a bookshop day special, and you can hear about what bookshops mean to him. To this day, I, I literally cannot walk past a bookshop without going in. And I very rarely leave a bookshop, like many people do, without a pile of books, because I just think it's your there's no other shop and i think that's why bookshops which have done so much work so hard to survive this pandemic and survive our changing high street i think they will endure because the ones that work you go in and there is just opportunity and experience piled high on every table there is more on the way with piers tour day in this week's writer's routine Welcome along, it's Writer's Routine. Uh, this is where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. My name's Dan Simpson, thank you for finding, downloading, streaming, following us. This week, it's a Bookshop Day special. Uh, when this is released, if you're quick, Bookshop Day is tomorrow, Saturday the 9th of October. Maybe it's gone by the time that you're listening, but who knows, maybe Bookshop Day should be every day. It's just a chance to think about and maybe visit and spend some money in the bookshop that's near you, bookshops big or small. And we're joined by Piers Torday to celebrate. He loves a bookshop, pretty much grew up in them. And you can hear how being surrounded by words and magic when growing up has led him to become a writer now. Now, Piers has written seven books. He's won the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. He's been nominated for the Carnegie Medal. Uh, his books have been translated into 14 languages and his new one is The Wild Before. It's a prequel to the hugely successful The Last Wild trilogy. Uh, it's all about Little Hare, who needs to persuade all of the animals to help save the world. We talk about the initial idea that he had for the story and what prompted him to go back to old characters to tell it, to write the prequel. Also, you can hear why he's a huge fan of copying and being a magpie and how much he thinks about rhythm and beats, and whether authors really read the writing manuals that they've always got around them. Now, there is a dog in the background to this, so when it barks every now and then, it's not yours. 
Don't worry. I mean, if you are around the dog, maybe take it off speaker, listen through your headphones so you don't get it excited and set it off. Just a little bit of warning before we get into it. But let's do that right now for a Bookshop Day special with the children's author Piers Torday, starting as always with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. So I write in a study at the back of my house. Um, and uh, it's I've got a big uh, computer screen in front of me on a standing desk because I uh, try and write creatively sitting down but try and do boring admin and emails and stuff standing up uh, so I don't become a complete uh, cripple. Behind me, um, I've got some posters of my books and plays and actual copies of my books. Um, Because although I'm not an egomaniac, I think it's also useful to be reminded of what you have done um, when uh, confidence uh, runs at a low ebb. Um, I write children's books mainly. So I've got a bookcase next to me, which is full of um, my favorite children's books. And turns out there's a lot of those. I've also got a big selection of books on writing and how to write and writing advice, as well as reference books like dictionaries and quotations and style manuals. Um, Then at sort of hand reach level, I've got endless piles of books with the different projects I'm working on, uh, sort of research and inspiration, which I try and keep in some order but it's not always easy um then there's a separate big pile of books on another uh sort of chest of drawers which is all the books i'm meant to read and uh give quotations about which are just is staring at me uh making me feel very guilty uh and then i've got a view out of the window of um a garden um i heard someone on your podcast the other day saying that it's best to write inside a windowless room um which might work for some people, but actually I really need light and and greenery. I find very uh, soothing when you're trying to concentrate. So actually the room is green as well. It's sort of like a um, dark, dark green colour. Now, I just want to cover the, the books that are behind you. You said you've got a lot of books from authors that you value and that have inspired you along the way. I often wonder when authors have books around them, how often do you actually look at them or is it just a bit like decoration just to let you know that you're an esteemed company, hopefully? Um, It's a little bit of the latter. It is a bit of decoration, but genuinely, I always think if you don't know how to do something, um, other people probably do. And um, I'm often looking at books. I'll think, oh, didn't so-and-so have a brilliant description of such and such a scene? Someone on Truth the other day was saying, how do you do battle scenes? And everyone was sharing examples of good battle scenes in books because things like that are actually quite technical. You know, how many people do you describe? At what point do you bring them into the action? How much do you show? No, it's not a movie, it's a book. So you've got to try and balance the ambition in your head with what's actually achievable on the page. And it's often when you read, it's so interesting as well, I think, when you think about things that have inspired you and are memorable in your head, often when you read them, they're quite different. So I guess a classic example is I wrote a book a few years ago called The Lost Magician, which was sort of inspired by The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And when you talk about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I think for a lot of people, one of their key memories is Lucy going through that wardrobe and discovering Narnia. It's a kind of er moment of children's literature, really. And But when you actually read it in the book, it's nothing. It's like it's a couple of lines in in that book. 
But of course, it's a very effective couple of lines with a brilliant image. So in our heads, we've turned it into this big thing. And if you try to recreate that moment as a writer today, you might think, oh, I need to spend all day on a page. On And of course, it's just a fleeting moment in the book. So it's really interesting to remind yourself sometimes that what you're trying to achieve is often not necessarily achieved on the page in the way you thought it was. But then quickly, how would you know how to do that? I, I guess we're getting into... An inception of a question, almost. But yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of uh, copying. <laughs> I think you know all writers are magpies, and when I speak to writers starting out, I always say, don't be. One exercise I get people to do when I teach creative writing is find their favourite passage in the children's book and literally copy it out word for word, because then you begin to understand how things can be structured. Eventually. As your own ideas and your own voice come forward, it will never, should never resemble anything anyone else has written. But you can learn so much from actually deconstructing how great effects, how great literary effects are achieved. You mentioned the desk as well, the uh, the, the the standing and sitting, so you don't get horrendous back problems. Uh, without trying to read too much into this, you do your creative work when you're sat down. Have you noticed a difference in? In your energy levels, maybe your the 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 vibe, I guess that's that's coming through when you sit and stand. I think there's a. Um, uh, I was reading something yesterday. I was talking about teamwork. Some research they've done into flow and teamwork, but I think it's the same. Uh, you know, writing is a very solitary job, and for me, it's about flow. And obviously, the dream I think as writers, most writers are trying to recreate, is that sense of play that we had when we were children when we would just be left alone, hopefully, for a while, and we could just write and draw and we didn't notice time passing and it felt amazing. Harder to do as an adult because you've got so many you've got responsibilities and distractions and everything. So what I try and do is hive off those distractions and responsibilities to a different physical mode. Um, so that's sort of standing up and interacting mode. And that way I try and condition my brain to think that when I'm sitting down, um, and just focus that that is my version of being in a sealed off room with no internet. That's my kind of writing mode and just try and let the writing flow without interruption. But to be honest with you, to do that for 25 minutes these days, I think is a win. Um, and lots of blocks of 25 minutes will get the same effect. I think hours of uninterrupted flow are very difficult in the sort of multi um connected age that we live in just take me onto your desk this desk that can move uh, I, I know some writers are into trinkets and tokens and talismans sorry what, what have you got around you that that lets you know what you're doing and how you're working so uh what have i got various things i i get sent i'm very lucky because when you write uh, children's books and visit schools you get sent all sorts of lovely things so i've uh got a collection on my I sit on my bookshelf next to me of um, different teddy bears that I've been given at different schools. I'm not a sort of soft toy collector, but I'm very touched by these things. And um, I write, you know, a lot of books about animals. And when I finished my first series about animals, my agent gave me, even though I'm a grown man, a complete set of sort of um, farmyard toy versions of the animals in my books, you know, the little molded uh, things. And I've got those. Um, I've got a very important animal who is Bernard the sheep. Um, and um, Bernard is a sort of old, very battered sort of um, iron, I think it's Victorian money box in the shape of a sheep. 
And Bernard's not in any of my stories, but Bernard plays a very important role because when I get blocked and don't know how to do something or fix something on the page, I um, your listeners might think I'm insane, but I simply sit and describe the problem to Bernard. And although Bernard doesn't reply, by the time I finish describing the problem to Bernard, funnily enough, often the solution will have presented itself to me. Um, I think part of the problem as writers is we we have to work alone, most of us, unless we write with someone. And uh, that's quite, and so problem solving is often just about sharing the problem. And because we don't share the problem, um, we often make, I think, uh, life harder for ourselves than we might. Because there's a big problem when you, when you know that someone's writing a book, you'll ask them, oh, tell us about it. And they'll be very coy. No, no, no. I don't want to tell you anything. I don't want to ruin it for myself. It's almost like the process of you verbalizing it to someone else is almost defeats the point of you writing the book. So I guess that would make perfect sense that you're talking to someone that can't spill the beans, really. Exactly. And they're not going to say, oh, you know, that's brilliant. That's just like so-and-so and so-and-so. Because then it sort of lets the gas out of it. And it feels like it doesn't feel special. And it doesn't feel yours. And it feels like someone else is doing it. And the whole sort of motivation to write the story in the first place, if you're not careful, kind of withers on the vine. Now, what is what else is there practical around you? I've got lots of paperweights, uh, which I find useful for sort of, um, even on our digital age, I still end up with lots of, you know, documents and things particularly when I'm researching and making notes. Um, never far away my noise-cancelling headphones um, because one of the things I do to help me get into that writing flow state is I listen to, like a lot of people do, I listen to music. Um, and it's become a real habit now to the extent that if I can't listen to music, I get in a bit of a bother. I can write without music, especially if I'm editing. But when I'm creating, so when I'm travelling, I always need to make sure that I've got, you know, some decent, without access to Wi-Fi, I've got decent playlists downloaded. It just seems to trip something in my brain and gets it out of sort of day-to-day conscious mode and onto a more deeper subconscious level and the noise cancelling. What, what type of music are you listening well, to? Well, it's is? very specific. I can't really listen to music with lyrics because the words just get in the way. I mean, it's a bit weird because I never, after the first few tracks, I never really notice what I'm listening to anyway. It's kind of done its job, but I let it play on. Um, but essentially, I'm a complete addict for sort of movie and TV soundtracks. And um, and I just sort of experiment a lot, listening to kinds of the similar genre to help me try and find, locate that emotional tone and pace um, and just remind myself of the ambition of what I'm trying to write, whether it's something very moving or something very action-packed, you know, the right, keeps your writing on the right pace and the right tone. And But often I'll find, I'll just find one cue on a whole soundtrack and that might just do it for me. Um, and so, for example, when I was writing The Lost Magician, uh, there were just a couple of cues on the, nothing to do with the story whatsoever, but the TV soundtrack for The Crown. And it just seemed to work for that book. And I just... When when Spotify gave me the, you know, your end of year um, listening, it was like this random cue on a TV soundtrack, which I listened to hundreds of thousands of times because it just helped me get back into the story each time. That's what's kind of keeping your ears busy. What about your eyes? Have you got anything around you that lets you know what that day's work is? Is there a big spreadsheet, a whiteboard, post-it notes around? So so I use a program. I use a program called uh, Scrivener, which I'm sure some of your other 
guests have used. And it Scrivener has an excellent uh, daily word count. You type in your draft in your deadline, it um, helps you calculate back. Um, and um, I'm a real sort of software geek. I love when I use a program called Things to have lots of different projects and manage where I am on them. And just very easy to sort of take off. I've done this, I've done that. I really hope my handwriting is terrible. Um, so I've tried so many times over the years to get engaged with keeping handwritten notes, uh, which I do obviously for some things and index cards and post-its like some people do, but it just ends up looking so messy and scrappy uh, and often illegible that I just, it ends up kind of depressing me. So I just, I don't have much of that. I'm very screen focused and I have a lot, I am organized, but it's all kind of with the help of, software and screens not really i keep a lot of notes on my phone i'm not i'm not a great um i'm not surrounded by lots of handwritten paraphernalia or um stuff like that and just lastly on what you see on the screen uh we're very interested in fonts uh in fonts um well let me just yeah so i'm pretty interested uh, obsessed by fonts i've sort of what i did after i started getting published was i tried to match what i wrote in to the font, the typesetters and my publishers use, which has been more or less, they'll probably be horrified. No, we've individually designed each one, but more or less consistent throughout, um, which is uh, book Antique, Antiqua. I don't know if you pronounce it. So I sort of like to write in that because again, anything that makes you help feel that um, you're on the road to getting published, I think it's a big boost. And it makes it look like the book. It reminds you, like, this is what it's actually going to look like a little bit to the reader. Is it working? Um, I do sometimes print out in a totally random different font, as other people do, to proofread, because it makes you see the story fresh. Um, and I then I'm quite protective of that font that I use for the sort of draft, and I won't use it in other areas. And so there's a distinction. And um, if I'm doing a different book or a different or a play, or the other things that I write, I'll definitely use a very, very different uh, font. So each one, because I think you're right, the danger with the digital work is that stuff starts to lose its character and identity a bit. And I think you want to try and um, keep that as much as you possibly can. Um, well, I'm not very good at, <laughs> on a podcast where I just seen, you know, I'm not very good at routine because I wish I was. In a way, I I think the writer's dream is that you have every day and i have read so many interviews where people say you know and and on your show where people say uh i do this and do that but the truth is i don't think anyone stays ever really like that because everyone has a range of things they need to do and writers don't just need to write we need especially children's writers we need to go and visit schools uh we need to do other things to pay the bills we need to do bits of teaching um and so and those are kind of irregular and so I've really learned to work around those other commitments. And I have a dog that needs walking and he doesn't always play by my routine. So I have to kind of live with that a bit. Um, and other people have, you know, childcare commitments and things that don't always play by those rules. So I'm more focused on a series of kind of micro routines and my micro routine to get what I need to get written, written is to carve out, at least a two-hour space, hopefully two hours in the morning and hopefully two hours in the afternoon. I don't think people can concentrate on 
creative work for much more than four hours a day, whatever people say, effectively. And uh, I listen to my soundtracks to get me into the space. And then I work in sort of 20, 20, 25 minute bursts. And then I'll lift my head up and check my email or look at Twitter for a breather or do a bit of research or make that phone call I needed to do. And then I'll go back in for a 25 minute burst. And as long as I can get my daily word count done, I'm happy. So if my daily word count is 300 words, that's all I'll do and I'll stop there. But sometimes, of course, if things go wrong or you get blocked or you need to pause to do some research and need to catch up, that might go up to anywhere between 600 words and 1,000 words. And writing 1,000 words in four hours is, is a bit more punchy. Writing 1,000 good words, and they're not going to be perfect, but in those bursts in four hours, you need to be a bit more focused. So that's not always achievable, but I do my best. But for me, the biggest thing is momentum. So whatever else life throws in your path, whether you've got, you know, I've got two school visits this week that are still in between train journeys and whatnot to be able to keep up that momentum, keep getting those words on the page. Because for me, that's the most important thing because even if they don't always feel brilliant, you know, you're typing them in a packed train with everyone talking and on their phones. Um, it's not the ideal creative environment, but then at the end of the week you go, well, actually, I've kind of got three to 5,000 words down this week and we're making progress. So that's that's all I try and achieve. Um, I'm completely institutionalized. So wherever I'm writing, whether it's in a library or at my desk or on a train, I always stop middle of the morning for sort of coffee and a snack. And I always stop for a full hour at lunch and don't do any writing or reading and listen to the radio and chill out. And I always have at least an hour of ex physical exercise somewhere, whether it's walking the dog or going to the gym or something, because the other thing I've noticed is that, again, if you the fantasy of unbroken writing actually is not helpful because you just get worn out. And unless you're exercising the body as well as the mind, something weird happens and your the body and the mind get out of sync and actually just gets harder to harder to write. You mentioned the quality of words there. On days when you're writing maybe fewer words than on others, maybe it's a 300-word day instead of a 1,000 or so, hmm. because you're squeezing, because you're doing less in the same amount of time, are you, um, are you, are you conscious of maybe the quality of those words are a bit better because you're not in a slight rush to get them down? I think what's really interesting is I don't actually know the answer to that question. Because um, what I find fascinating is, you know, you'll have some bits that some days that just flow. And, you know, there are, of course, the days when sometimes I just know exactly what I'm going to write. And literally, I've done my words in half an hour. And, and then I use the rest of the time to catch up on admin and whatnot. There are other days when I just am staring, I'm pacing and scratching my head, trying things, deleting them. And somehow I just get something down by the end of that uh, day. Looking back, even at the end of that week, certainly when I print out the draft, I've no idea. I I don't look at a bit and go, oh, that was a tricky day. That was a, I, you can't tell. I think you're, and I think the truth is, I think your writing talent is a bit like a sort of constant water table. Like, and obviously, hopefully you refine it over time with craft and experience. But I think what fluctuates so wildly is your own psychological perception of your talent. And so actually, 
the answer to your question is, I think probably the writing is, there's not much difference between the writing that I thought was amazing and flowed and the writing that I found a real struggle. It's just, I found it harder to do the other one. I'd like to ask you a question that I've always wanted to ask children's writers, but, but perhaps have struggled to articulate. So bear with me while I plod my way through it. Uh, I, so many different genres of author will listen to this show and they might think something about uh, the way you write a children's book, perhaps simply because there's fewer words in it, or perhaps because a lot of celebrities dive into the worlds of children's writing every Christmas. What do you think about the difficulties of writing children's fiction over adult fiction that perhaps some crime writers, some fancy fiction authors won't really dwell upon? I think uh, children's fiction is is genre fiction and it comes with as rigorous a set of demands as any genre, such as crime or romance or or horror. I suppose, unlike those genres, it is it is a very broad church. So there are obviously children's versions of crime, children's versions of horror, children's versions of of fantasy, but it's a kind of uber genre of itself. And you know, the overwhelming demand of children's fiction is you have to keep a young reader's attention on turning the page. That's your like number one priority because first of all, you're trying to encourage a lot of them to read in the first place. Secondly, as we know, children have many, many competing demands on their uh, attentions from games to the internet to schoolwork. And they haven't, they're not yet, you know, of a, a maturity where they've kind of decided where they're going to focus those attentions. So everything's an option. So you're really trying to hold them on the page. And that means, you know, the room for self-indulgence and I'm not saying lots of writers are self-indulgent, but um, you you just the margin for what you can get away with, if you like, is much tighter. So in terms of lengthy evocative descriptions or uh, stuff that's not entirely germane to the sort of action action of the book. And the other thing you have to bear in mind is that whilst I think you can write about any subject for children, really, I've written about climate change, I've written about death, and many people have written about all sorts of difficult, challenging subjects. You are writing for children, so bad language is off the menu, um, and as is, uh, you know, kind of adult psychological processes. How I got to this point, and you know, extreme violence and all the rest of it. So you often need to find ways, and you do know you're not trying to upset people. You're not, you know, however dramatic you're trying to be, you're trying to be. You're trying to. You are writing for children. And so you're acutely aware of this kind of responsibility. And so the challenge is, you know, how do you make points? How do you marshal emotion? How do you engage them while staying within those kind of boundaries of uh, of, of a children's book? And I think that's what makes it, uh, it can can make it difficult because writers, writers of adult fiction just have a much greater menu, if you like, uh, available to them and everything from language to theme to how they approach those themes. And... Um, I don't think there's any language sort of vocabularized you can't use in children's book if you contextualize it, but you do need to get sort of, I suppose, experienced at that. Um, and I think what I sometimes see is people who jump into children's books, if you like, if that's what you're talking about, is I think often 
they either make two mistakes, there's sort of two ends of the spectrum, they make a mistake. I think they either fantastically underestimate children, and you see books that are quite sort of uh, childish and lazy and weak, and that don't really have a really clever, smart story or challenge children or provoke them or engage them. Or you have books that on the other end just completely shoot over children's heads and you're like, you don't know, <laughs> you don't really, you're not, you haven't replaced yourself in the mind of a child. And I think that's what makes children's writers so unusual is that we're always, when we sit down and write, we're trying to imagine ourselves as, you know, several decades, well, in most cases, several decades or a couple of decades younger, younger than we are at the time we write. Whereas most other writers, I suppose, imagine themselves writing for their peers. And that's, um, uh, and that's, a, and it is an act of faith because even if we have children or even if we know our children's friends and spend a lot of time in schools, our friends are not children. So, you know, it is, it is an act of faith that we hope that children will respond to what we hope children will respond to. If because of that, then if your idea, as you were saying, has to be very tight, if it needs to be constantly engaging, uh, nothing that's not immediately pertinent to the story, how refined does you, uh, as you, Piers, how refined do your initial ideas and templates tend to be? How how much of the the, the overall story do you know when you first sat down when you first sit down to write? Um, yeah, I think you do need to keep the overall concept pretty simple. Um, and, uh, I always have, I suppose, a sort of starting premise that's really easy to explain. Um, I know I'm going to be going around schools and talking about this book, so I need to have something that I can stand up in any classroom or school hall and explain in a few words. And when I begin to write, I sort of, I, I like to see where that premise, so as in my first books, what, what if a mysterious virus killed nearly animals in the world? was where I started. And I suppose I have a sense of an endpoint, which is that it would be good if someone could reverse that or stop that. So um, quite a simple premise and quite a simple kind of outcome. And then when I sit down to write, I enjoy seeing where the characters themselves uh, lead me, because I think unless characters teach you, the writer, something, they're probably not that interesting to a reader um since they're too predictable um but what i would have and when i plot the books out is i know there's a series of moments that i want to happen regardless a series of encounters revelations um moments of growth moments of challenge that i still want to get in there it may turn out that they don't end up happening in the order i envisaged but i kind of plot those a bit like i always think it's a bit like i'm sure you've heard many analogies but it's um it's, I think, a bit like a ship going around a coast in the fog, but you know there's a series of light, lighthouses. So you don't really know where you're going. But as long as you can get to the next lighthouse, you're like, phew, well, I haven't gone to the rocks yet. I'll go. And I'm just keep following the coast around. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Piers Tour Day in this Bookshop Day special in just a sec. Very quickly before we do, uh, let me flag up our Patreon page if you're enjoying the show. If you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell your stories, if it's given you ideas and motivation and inspiration, uh, you can say thanks to us, if you fancy, over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. We've done almost 200 episodes now. I've lost count. It'll be there somewhere, but... There's a lot of stuff that you've had on the show uh, and by pledging to patreon.com forward slash writers routine it really helps us out. For doing that you get uh, merch, you get our never ending thanks, you also get bonus content, extra episodes as well and there is a chance for your book to sponsor this show. Anything that you can contribute goes an incredibly long way. Uh, I really do value, appreciate and love every single pledge. Uh, and you can get involved if you'd like. You can be one of our backers over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Piers Torday talking about writing, planning, plotting and bookshops as well. Because this is a bookshop day celebration episode. Saturday the 9th of October is the day to celebrate bookshops big or small to get down to your local bookshop and maybe give them some money if you get in exchange for books. Give them some money in exchange for books. Now, in this half, we talk about his time pretty much growing up in bookshops and why, as a kid's author, he values them so much. Also, you can hear about beats and rhythms and how Animal Farm inspired this story. And we pick things up talking about the new novel, The Wild Before, and how it first came to him. It was really a response to what's going on in the world. I try and... uh, write stories about stuff that's happening in the world. I, for me, it needs to be about an interesting subject or I'm just not interested enough to write to write the book. And then how do I write about that for children? Um, and I'd written three books, um, the Last Wild series, Last Wild, Dark Wild and the World Beyond, about um, a sort of dystopian world where the animals had, dis- had, had di- disappeared and um, a little boy who can talk to animals tries to save the last few animals that have survived this virus. And, you know, I wrote three books about all kinds of wildlife, British wildlife, urban wildlife, marine wildlife. And I, you know, there's never enough to say about climate change, but I felt as a writer, I'd said like, you know, my piece 
in those three books. Um, and I started writing about other things. And then when a couple of years ago, Greta Thunberg arrived on the um, scene and really just sort of lit the place up, if that's not an inappropriate analogy. Um, and I was inspired by two things. One was that that just as a very young, a younger person then, her fearlessness in speaking truth to power and standing up at the UN, at Davos, and telling the people who run this world that they were out of line and they needed to act fast. And two, the broader message to all of us that the world was on fire and time was running out. And I realised that the climate change debate and indeed the climate change situation had moved into a different, more alarming phase. And I was really inspired by this child who also inspired billions of children across the world to go on climate strike. So I wanted to write a story really about hope, and I wanted to have a young character at the centre of it. So I came up with this idea of a prequel to uh, the, the first series that explains how the world got into this perilous situation in the books, um, but how that we must have hope that it can be solved, and that I, no question at all, it'll be the youngest, smallest members of our society who will play a crucial part in leading that change um, because they're the ones who might be affected the most. So this story is about a little hare, um, called little hare because they're small for their kind, in this beautiful, idyllic English countryside valley who one night discovers this calf that's been born um, on an unseasonably snowy spring night. Her mother, because of the cold, sadly has perished giving birth to her. And the calf is this strange, almost magical silver colour all over. And under the full moon, when the little hare discovers this calf, he decides, he call, he christens her moon calf, and that he's going to do whatever he can to look after her. And that mission becomes all the more important when he discovers that this magical calf is in fact part of an animal prophecy, that if the moon calf's not saved, then something terrible is going to happen to all the animals on the farm. And this hare will discover that even when you want to save something so beautiful that everyone agrees is beautiful and wonderful, getting everyone's consent on how to save that beautiful thing is a little bit harder than you might at first imagine. And um, it's a big adventure, and it's also got some quite scary bits because climate change is quite scary, but it's also about bravery. Now, um, I guess, how did you arrive on that analogy? Like, How long did it take you when you decided, I want to write a book about climate change? What was the process of getting from there to typing your first sentence? Run me through the the path that you took when you realised, oh, this is a nice uh, and this is an apt metaphor for the state of the world before you started uh, writing the thing. Right. So I uh, it's a bit of a cheat because in this case, I'm writing a prequel. So I had a slightly ready-made world, even though it's a prequel. I did have some rules and things I knew wanted to get in, but it is a prequel, so it's a totally different story. So I wasn't starting quite from fresh, but I had some parameters. Um, I knew I wanted to write a book about uh, uh, this hare who does feature in the actual series. And I've always been fascinated by hares, and you know, they're such a big part of our folklore. And so the first thing I did was I sat down and I read, you know, about five or six books, non-fiction books about hares, and the countryside they live in. And I just made huge lists of all the different words that have been used to describe hares from Old English to poems, because um, I'll keep those as a reference. So 
sometimes I think, oh, how do I describe a hare running through a, you know, a field at night? I'll go to my little kind of database of other things and find that, oh, here's a poem by Wordsworth that describes that beautifully. And I, I won't copy the line, but I'll do like, oh, that's a, that's a nice idea. I'll try and do my version of that. It's a nice observation, an interesting language that feels particular to that. And But I also read about hair biology and how their eyes work, how their ears work, how fast they are. So I could, it felt, when I write animals in books, I always want them to feel like authentic rather than just sort of pure Disney anthropomorphism. Um, and I also read a lot of children's books that have done similar things. I read some books on climate change and I read some children's classics because I always think it's good to kind of make sure you're a mess to the present. How are people writing about these subjects now? but also never lose touch with the tradition you're in and how people have done it in the past because there's still tricks you can always learn. Um, and you don't want to repeat things that have already been done, of course. Um, and I also read, because the book is sort of a bit like an animal farm for climate change in the sense some animals rebel against the humans running the farm, but it's not about totalitarianism, it's about climate change. Uh, I really read Animal Farm, and which is one of my favourite books ever because I just think it's perfect. And I actually structured, my first structure of the story was based on Animal Farm because I wanted this book to be short. And Animal Farm is very short. It's about 36,000 words long or something. And I think quite a few children's books are actually too long. So I wanted this book to be about 40,000 words, which it is. So my initial structure, just because I had nothing, I had a premise and some characters, was I took Animal Farm and I broke down each chapter, just we're writing different stories, but George Orwell was writing a book with a cast of animals discussing a political issue on a farm as an allegory. And that's sort of what I was doing. So I was like, okay, how many animal characters does he have in each chapter? What themes do they discuss? How much has the story moved on between chapter and chapter? And where are the key, where did he put the key sort of turning points? So it's more like, I'm not really interested in the detail. I'm not copying his characters or his words or his ideas but I'm like trying to get to the kind of bodywork under the chassis if you like the kind of structure and go right what are the essentials and I tried just very loosely my first draft of a plot and outline copying those those rhythms so at least in the bones of it it would feel a bit like Animal Farm of course by the time I start adding by the time my characters come alive and go in their own direction and my story has its own problems and challenges it's become a very different book. But I always like to start that way because I feel like I'm on quite steady footing. You know, this guy did this, seemed to work well for him. I'll learn from what he did and begin with those kind of fundamentals, just as if I was making an item of furniture that I, even I wanted to be my own, I would start looking at how someone else has made that item of furniture and copy their dimensions and measurements, but ultimately end up with a very different, differently crafted piece. It's a big concept that you're writing about and you're trying to do it in an engaging way that keeps um, children interested. Uh, how much are you worried when you cotton on to quite a big topic that perhaps it might end up a bit, a bit worthy and a bit too didactic? Yeah, really worried. And, and it, is, it, is, it is a risk. Um, uh, and I hope I don't fall into that trap. What I try to do is leaven everything with humour and warmth. So for all the kind of doom and gloom that comes when you're writing about sort of extreme weather events, as there are in the book, 
there's still lots of humour. There's a very sort of rude Robin who's very offensive to everyone. Um, there's a very bossy uh, waxwing bird who's sort of trying to G everyone up and various other characters that I hope lighten the mood because I think any message, any subject is always acceptable if there's sort of humour grounding it. And um, I also try and keep just my focus on the action because as long as the story's moving and stuff is happening, there isn't too much space for it to sort of fall into a sort of uh, trap of becoming 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 a lecture. Um, and it, it, especially with subjects like climate change, um, it is it is a risk. I think that if you get children to emotionally engage, that's why I like to use animals really, that they really care about these animals and their plight and their fate, that emotional engagement in their in that character's story will always hopefully stop it feeling like uh, anything too didactic. Well, I uh, am a bit biased because I grew up in a bookshop. Um, and when I was uh, little, very little, I mean, you know, crawling around little, um, my mum had, uh, Jane Torder had just uh, moved to um, a little town in Northumberland called Hexham uh, back in the 70s, and she didn't know anyone. Um, she just had me and my dad was away working in Newcastle quite far away. And uh, her idea to get to know people, because she'd always loved reading and books, was to, in the front room of our house, was to open a little bookshop, which she called Total Books, after the Total and Win in the Willows. And it sold all manner of children's books and um, toys and games. And so literally my early years were spent crawling around, surrounded by books. So I was kind of doomed um, for life. Um, but it did also, I think, get me into the magic of books. We had visits from authors like Eve Ribbertson, had a wonderful um, record of a visit through a letter from Roald Dahl, which I've still got, um, about how he wrote Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And I, I planted a seed that there was something, something magical about bookshops. And to this date, I cannot, to this day, date to this day, I I literally cannot walk past a bookshop without going in. And I very rarely leave a bookshop, like many people do, without a pile of books because I just think it's your, there's no other shop. And I think that's why bookshops, which have done so much, work so hard to survive this pandemic and survive our changing high street, I think they will endure because the ones that work, you go in and there is just opportunity and experience piled high on every table. You know, there, you, there are a thousand different voices uh, from different human beings, different perspectives, and it's always going to be endlessly fascinating. And, you know, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, children's, the whole nine yards, they are these still in our digital age, they are little palaces of wonder. And I think you see children um, come alive to that when they go into a bookshop and start realising the range of stories and perspectives and experiences that are out there, not just within the pages of a book, but in, in life. But the pages of a book is a great place to start. That's a really good point, actually, that very rare, I, I would say no other shop, do you have quite as much opportunity for opportunity for 
for different possibilities for i guess growth but for escapism for magic for for learning there's no everywhere you look is yeah everywhere you look is a title saying i bet you never thought about this um i bet you've wondered what it would be like if this happened and i, I think the human mind just can't resist those provocations um if, if they're if they're good and interesting ones also, I've always wanted to um, to work in a bookshop, and I guess as you spent so much time in it, I I can't imagine many people who shop in a bookshop are um, are mad or angry. I imagine seems it, I imagine it seems quite a, a chilled out uh, life working in a bookshop. Yeah, I hope so. I do occasionally see on Twitter reports of people frustrated by people coming in and you know looking at books on Amazon and then seeing if it's cheaper and buying it elsewhere or complaining about this and that but i do think there's something very civilized about bookshops i think they are um kind of civic they are civic public spaces um you know many have cafes as well and many bookshops obviously encourage people just as you know that not many other shops do they say look it's fine if you want to sit here and read a book and not buy it or read some of a book that's kind of fine because that's part of the experience that they're offering and people gather in the evenings to, well, hopefully now more post-COVID, but uh, gather in the evenings to hear events and share stories. And so I think the more bookshops become these kind of, I don't know, centres of centres of thought and discussion uh, in in our public sphere. I think they will. I think they'll keep on keep on surviving. And so, in other words, they're not, yes, they do need to make a profit. Yes, they are very commercial and they need to sell lots of piles of Richard Osman books and David Wallen books and Sally Rooney books, which is all, all good. Um, but I also think the, the reason they keep on surviving, the ones that do survive, is they just offer this sort of very human experience of sharing stories and ideas that no other commercial premises does. I am. Um, I'm someone who both loves a, a book, and I'll be honest, I enjoy Kindle just because I live in a tiny one-bedroom London flat, and I don't have a lot of space for things. And I'm, I'm I don't believe that those things are mutually exclusive. But I don't know uh, what that might be like for kids now. As an author, as a children's author, how worried are you about um, uh, kind of? bookshops in the future and their place in the lives of children to keep them engaged and interested so i think um i think ebooks are really interesting um there was a moment you know when everyone thought the um ebook was going to replace the printed book um and one of the reasons in this country for example we're having a discussion at the moment about why so many of our books and our, particularly our picture books are printed in China or the Middle East is because when the Kindle came along, a lot of the printers uh, shut because we thought they just thought the demand was going to dry up. And actually the opposite has happened, whereas actually we live in such a digital world that the demand for physical objects has, if anything, increased. You know, so many beautiful books. And I think for children, the picture is complex in that regard. Because I think children spend quite a lot of time on screens already. You know, a lot of homework is delivered on iPads now, as you know, especially with increasing remote learning. And But children don't own much. Um, and as we know, some children, unfortunately, own very little at all and certainly don't own many books. And 
Books are quite inflation resistant. We're entering a time of rising prices, um, but they are objects that you can own. And I think children like collecting books in the series. They like having colourful, handsome, attractive books that are fun to look at that belong to them or that they can share with their friends um, or not share with their brother and sister. Um, and uh, we know that boys during the lockdown did start reading more on screens, and I think that's really interesting. I think there is a thing that boys, particularly ones maybe reluctant, more reluctant readers, uh, like to be able to switch between, you know, uh, devices, gaming, social media, books, um, more like a sort of workflow, if you see what I mean. Um, and we also know the other thing that happened was um, that in lockdown was that children's use of audiobooks increased hugely, jumped hugely. I mean, audiobooks are going up for everyone, but particularly for children. So that's really interesting. But like all these things, I think they just add to the layers of experience. I don't think anything is at risk. So I think you're going to, moving forward, I think you'll see literacy for children being about, you know, on screen, in your ears, on the page, doesn't really matter as long as you're sort of consuming these other uh, other worlds and experiences. And I think uh, more and more children's bookshops, um, I think, are sort of conscious of this multi-approach. And so, like my local bookshop, Pickle Pepper Books in Crouch End, is now not just a bookshop. It has a children's theatre above it. And I think for them, the live physical experience that, you know, derives ultimately from stories, if not directly from books, is as important to them as selling, as selling physical books, um, and uh, and for me, it's not about getting hung up on the actual artifact like the book, because as long as you're selling stories, I think we're winning. That is it for this week's Bookshop Day special of Writer's Routine. Bookshop Day is the ninth of uh, October, Saturday the 9th of October. If you've got some time, if you've, if it's not already passed by the time you're listening to this, go carve out some time, head to your local bookshop to celebrate. Now, next week on the show, we're with the USA Today best-selling author, Claire Allen, who's telling us about her brand new novel, Ask No Questions. If you'd like to grab a copy of Piers' brand new book, head to writersroutine.com or use the link in the episode notes wherever you're listening. Over on the website as well, it's one of the best places that you can get in contact with the show. You could do that on Twitter, at writerspod there, and you can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week with Claire Allen on the show. Until then, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 